Well, well, welcome to Mystic and the Machine. Today we have a very special guest. We have Keelan or Formscapes from the YouTube channel Formscapes, which has become one of our favorite esoteric um, channels. Uh, thanks so much for coming. And would you like to introduce yourself to our audience and just sort of let them know what you're about? Yeah, totally. Well, it's, it's funny that everybody says that um, uh, my channel is very esoteric, which is really interesting because it really, I, that wasn't exactly my path. Like my thing has always been just like weird science and philosophy stuff that I've just mm -hmm. kind of stitched together. And it just kind of like became extremely esoteric over time, right? And so a lot, a lot of my uh, audience, they're people who are really into like the channel Esoterica and a lot of these other channels that are really dedicated to that, which is interesting because it means I've learned a lot of stuff that I didn't know because because the real esoteric stuff is actually kind of new to me. Like recently I've been going through, uh, what's it called? John D's uh, Monus Hieroglyphica. And so that's, that's actually really the first like for real esoteric text that I've kind of uh, went in on in the same way that I've gone in on a lot of the other like philosophers that I talk about on my channel, so. But anyway, yeah, that's what I do. I make video essays about that kind of thing, and uh, yeah, welcome. Yeah, I think I think even like the sort of the because I agree, it's sort of like not uh, it's not like as 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 much like esoterica, like yeah, decrypting John D manuscripts and, <laughs> and such like that. But it is certainly like um, those sort of uh, questioning philosophies that don't get a lot of uh, space in public kind of uh, you know debate about stuff and and things i think your way that you approach the uh scientism versus science sort of uh you know discussion fairly recently on your channel was really really fantastic and um something that i've been sort of exploring over the last year or so as well or something i've been thinking about over the last year or so as well um especially so yeah, yeah that... i really appreciated uh, your angle and the way you approached that topic yeah that's what we wanted to dive in um with you about today since i saw a little bit of the debate going on between you and some asshole youtuber <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah decided to deep fun guy <laughs> great great <dude>. yeah. <laughs> love them. yeah yeah Decided to um, debunk your um <laughs> your video um and we tried to watch a little bit of it but he wasn't really engaging with your yeah. point at all he was just sort of and I I'm used to that sort of thing obviously having occupied the leftist YouTube space I'm used to that kind of bad faith mm -hmm. um especially when you're coming from a more esoteric or philosophical or psychological perspective and you're trying to sort of tackle these elements within the zeitgeist um the the, the debunkers like to to come after you so yeah let's let's dive right in do you want to ask your first <laughs> yeah question? well i think like one of the biggest things that sort of stuck out to me through your whole video sort of exploring this idea and was, is a topic that i've been very fascinated in over over a few years and it's something we talk about a lot on this channel is ufos and stuff right and so i feel like that specific topic <laughs> <laughs> gets folks within that sort of like dogmatic belief in 
the speed of light and like all of this kind of shit that they would just sort of like spiel out to you, even despite all of this new, you know, numerous uh, data points you've got on all of these sightings and physical evidence and all sorts of things. Yet you would still come back to these like hard, like this is the model and it doesn't fit the model. And so that can't exist or that doesn't happen or it must be a balloon or whatever the fuck. And, um, and that's how but, you can really tell whether somebody's being dogmatic or not. Like there's always going to be like little things that don't quite fit with your pet theory. But when you're just dismissing troves of evidence to yeah. save the theory, like, you know, and that, and that happens in science all the time, not just with yeah. physics, but I mean, like with evolutionary biology, this is something I've talked about a lot. Uh, and I mean, probably all kinds of things I don't even know about, but it's, it's there because scientific institutions, really institutions in general, are kind mm -hmm. of necessarily conservative. And then you start feeding billions of dollars into that after World War II when, when basically government started realizing, oh, we can use science to kill billions of people. Like, <laughs> And then it, it became this whole kind of self-perpetuating complex where it's, it's interesting because a lot of the people who are really at the forefront at that time, the, the big name physicists like Dirac and Feynman and Wheeler, it turns out that a lot of those people at the time were working on um, very well-funded anti-gravity research. And yeah. if you believe in anti-gravity, guess what you probably don't believe is the final word of physics general relativity theory yeah right and so, like if you're pouring billions of dollars into that and the guys who were at the forefront of physics were taking this very seriously and then you've got these guys who will be like no we we proved that einstein is right because mercury or whatever it, it, like come on like, it's, 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 it, i call it a middle management ideology like the people at the top definitely don't believe it but it keeps the middle management in line you know yeah mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. definitely <laughs> but i was going to ask what, what other um sort of topics like you know ufos ghosts remote viewing all sorts of things like i could kind of see as like things that you would come across that sort of really dogmatic thing what's what's been the thing for you that you see is kind of the the biggest flare-up of that sort of dogma or that that kind of instinct to be like, no, we have the information. <laughs> oh I boy, the there's, there's a lot. There's a lot. Um, I've been one thing that I've been super interested in lately is um, Michael Levin. If you guys are familiar with him, he's a biologist mm -hmm. from Tufts University. And so, to give a little bit of backstory, once upon a time, there was this very big idea within developmental biology called the idea of morphogenetic fields and bioelectricity. And so it was this kind of range of different ideas that were kind of floating around in the early 20th century, uh, mainly in embryology and developmental biology. And uh, again, around the same time period, around like after World War II, you had this thing where what we now call the neo-Darwinian paradigm really came to concretize because that was around the time that DNA was discovered. Right. And so the scientists were like, aha, we discovered what genes are, what heritable traits are because they're sequences of DNA. So if, you know, organisms have certain traits and somehow we're like programs, which are programmed by these DNA sequences on case mm -hmm. closed, we don't need to talk about fields or bioelectricity or any of that woo woo crap anymore. And uh, lo and behold, you know, one, uh, a kooky scientist, his name is Michael Levin again, um, he was really influenced by some of these works pertaining to bioelectricity that had 
basically been ignored uh, for for several decades now. And so, you know, he becomes a you know rather prestigious uh, researcher at Tufts University, and he starts actually doing experiments, trying to see if there's something to this. And the things that he had found are, first of all, just absolutely incredible and mind-blowing, but also just devastating to that neo-Darwinian understanding of what life is and how it actually evolves. So uh, I, I hate to do this because he explains it much better than me, but one uh, particularly uh, striking experiment he's done uh, has been with, uh, he's actually done several on these uh, planarian flatworms. So they're like these little couple inch long uh, flatworms. They have all kinds of interesting um, properties. They, they can regenerate and they, they uh, reproduce by like a, basically like tearing themselves in half and all kinds of other cool stuff mm -hmm. that biology nerds will geek out over. But anyway, um, he has uh, done this research pertaining to how traits are actually inherited with these planarian flatworms. And so he did this experiment where he took these flatworms and cut them in half. And uh, basically what he's working with is the idea that somehow electrical gradients between the cells are actually encoding the information that are actually telling these organisms how to regenerate. And so mm -hmm. he cuts them in half and then uses this solution of whatever, some kind of chemicals to basically depolarize the uh, electrical potential on the cells on the wound where the cut was. And what happens then is uh, the planarians grow two heads instead of a tail, right? Mm -hmm. But then when they reproduce, their offspring also have two heads. So that is like a major macro mutation that mm -hmm. was achieved without any alteration of DNA whatsoever. Yeah. And oh, wow. um, there, there are lots of other things that he's done that are, that are really interesting. He's created these things he calls xenobots, where he basically took... Um, what was it? it was it was like the dermal cells from frog embryos and just kind of stitched them together or like put them together so that they just kind of made these little clumps. And uh, so they weren't able to develop into fully formed frogs anymore. But what they did is they basically started forming themselves into these little spherical um, organisms that behave like organisms, like they move around and they'll like gobble up cells to grow and they'll actually reproduce and everything. And so these are complex emergent behaviors that could not have been possibly programmed by DNA because these things have only ever existed due to human intervention, right? Mm -hmm. So there's no way natural selection is causing them to do that. This is an emergent yeah. behavior that is somehow coming from something more fundamental than that. So anyway, yeah, really exciting stuff. <laughs> it feels like we're kind of in the era of um like uh those models and everything we've kind of known basically just kind of being blown apart right like yep. uh, even physics with the js uh jwst uh and everything like that it's sort of like we have all these ideas about how galaxies are formed and all of this stuff and all it took was the first few images from this new telescope to come through to just completely blow all of that shit out of the water um, yep. There's a there's a there's a writer that um, I really like called uh, Robert Anton Wilson, and he coined um, these two words that I I really like that sort of try. He, I hate kind of dumping people in categories and labels and whatever, but I feel like this is kind of two instinctual forces that play within any any person's mind, um, which is basically a neophyte or a neophobe. 
And so this is someone that mm. is like either very compelled and excited by the idea oh, of new ideas, of new information, of, of this kind of stuff, or the opposite that it finds <laughs> new information, new stuff, new uh, new things very scary and like not uh, not something to be engaged with. And he kind of makes up that this kind of is the part of the brain which will instinctually make you kind of either you know conservative or this sort of politically way inclined and all these kinds of other other rationale behind it but with the scientism thing that seems like a really interesting example because science is the discovery of new things and like embracing them to formulate then like your understanding of stuff and that's new ideas but then yet all the people that seem to adopt this sort of dogmatic attitude towards science are neophobic, are neophobic in the, in the exactly. sense of all of these new new things and new models and new information and stuff. So, what do you what do you think about that? Right. So that's really interesting because with religion, at least, at least there's an admission of that. It's like, yeah, we're you know this is faith, and you know it, it's it's this, we're not like doing experiments to prove the Old Testament. Or well, some people are like that, but they yeah. they kind of fall into the same category we're talking about here because. What happens, I've noticed, with a lot of these people, the, the neophobes or whatever we want to call them, mm -hmm. the, the very dogmatic people, mm -hmm. is they tend to be very, very religious when they're younger, right? Mm -hmm. And this is like mm -hmm. Susan right. Blackmore, Michael Shermer, Dan mm -hmm. Barker, um, many of these big name figures, these big name like skeptics and scientism types. Um, and they go through a crisis of faith, usually when they're pretty young, like teens, early 20s, something like that. And they go through this period where they're just really confused. They feel really betrayed by their belief system. And then they find science. And then they're like, oh, well, this is this is great. This doesn't involve dogma. We can test things. Now I can be right. Now I can actually be correct when I get in the arguments. And, and you see what's happening here yeah. is you've got this shadow material of that mm -hmm. need for mm -hmm. a sense of religiosity and they're running away from it. They're repressing it. And what happens, what does Young tell us when you try to get away from those contents of the unconscious, you don't actually get away from them. Yeah. They just yeah, go yeah, behind yeah. the curtain, put on a different hat and come out the other side and shake your hand. And you're none the wiser <laughs> if, if you're drinking the Kool-Aid, you know, yeah, and that's exactly yeah. what you see with these people. They're, they're like very, very religious. It's just they've completely lost any self-awareness about how religious they are. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it, it reminds me of um, the Jungian concept of enantiodromia or like the return of the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's really interesting because Jung yeah. talks about now being the sort of the paradigm of like the Antichrist or the archetype of the Antichrist. And he kind of pinpoints a lot of the pathology of modernity as being a response to the shadow aspects of the Christian paradigm. So now that we're in this hyper-materialist, hyper-rational, hyper-technological age, that sort of representing the archetype of the Antichrist, it's really just kind of an antiodromia. It's a response to this kind of, the, the, the failures of the Christian paradigm and the failures to kind of, um, look at and confront the shadow material of the Christmas of the Christian paradigm. And this extends beyond sort of personal idiosyncrasies. It's like a, a cultural form at the moment, um, a, a, a macro cultural problem. Um, what, yeah, what do you think about this concept? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. The thing <laughs> about the anti thing is once you start like 
looking for that process, you start seeing it everywhere. Things yeah, like yeah, yeah. when when things lose touch with their kind of guiding logos or whatever you want to call that, they mutate into these like perverted mirror images of themselves. Mm. Uh, I think mm-hmm. you see that everywhere, like the French Revolution, you see it in Marxism, you see it in, I mean, people's lives. I mean, it's everywhere. This just seems to be a very common motif. And it's really fascinating the way it plays out because when you see those motifs playing out, it it has this just really poetic karmic irony to it. And and it's like, if you don't see what's going on, it's like, I mean, it really looks like scripted, you know what I mean? Because it has this very narrative logic to it, you know what I mean? But it's, it's a story that's writing itself. But yeah. it's, it writes itself in a very logical way, yeah. right? What bugs me is like, how do people not see it though? It's like, um, it's like possession almost in a way. Um, and I guess secondly, uh, when it comes to attempting to um, help people see these pitfalls um, and see the sort of deeper layers of culture. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Do you think it's worth the efforts to try and wake people up to these uh, sort of unconscious forces? Because um, in my in my sort of experience, people tend to reject um, people t- tend to reject it when you try to expose the kind of binary code between these different cultural forces that are at play currently. Yeah, I mean, it really upsets people a lot of the yeah. time because a lot of these things are things that people are anchoring themselves to as, as a way to feel a sense of groundedness and stability in the world. And um, upsetting that is very disturbing for people. I mean, they won't admit that that's what's going on most of the time, but the world's a scary place. It's super confusing. It's chaotic. There's all kinds of stuff that we don't know. And this idea that, you know, it doesn't even have to, I mean, it could be a, a scientism type thing. It could be a political ideology. It could be religious beliefs. Anything that gives you a sense of just certainty is going to be something that's going to start to perform that psychological function of allowing you to feel grounded. And then the, the problem with that then is that if you're not aware that that's what's going on, then you're kind of unconsciously going to begin seeing anything that is challenging that as like a threat as an evil as something that needs to be put down and defeated um and so yeah i mean you see that everywhere and 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 you especially see it um when culture forms are going through periods of immense stress which is definitely Mm. thing that's happening right now with scientism right because because of all these things we're talking about with the jwst and with bioelectricity and yada yada uh, the traditional materialistic world paradigm of uh, modern science is changing right now. And the thing that really happens here with people who are really committed to that paradigm is they're going to feel under immense stress. And what happens then is you you get um, what you could call a kind of cultural immune response or an autoimmune response rather, right? There, there starts to be this thing where the like any kind of organism, whether it's it's a society or a person or whatever, there's, there's this kind of policing of boundaries between what's inside and good and what's supposed to be outside because it's bad. And, and, and then like the idea of like contamination, things that need to be expurgated or, or, or attacked, that becomes hyper accentuated during these periods of stress. 
um, which is incidentally this is exactly what you see in the body, like things like alopecia and whatnot. For for autoimmune disorders, you use immunosuppressant uh, 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 drugs to to treat that. And so um, we, we, I mean, we've all seen this play out with the the uh, kind of online leftist spaces. They went through this period of immense stress when the whole Bernie thing fell through, and then it turned into this very like extremist like ideological witch hunt thing, because that's a cultural autoimmune response. They're attacking anything that looks kind of other um, because they're, it's, it's a defense mechanism is essentially what it is because it's the, the system is trying to preserve itself. And now we're seeing the exact same th thing happen, play out with uh, the, the IFL science crowd, you know, because they're, uh, they're, they're, I think, feeling some of the same pressure, whether they realize it or not, because we are mm -hmm. going through a transformative period right now. And that means that science itself is going to be less able to serve that psychological function for them. And so they're going to start pointing fingers at each other and being like, oh, you're a pseudoscientist. You're a quack. You can't say that. That's unscientific. You're spreading mm -hmm. information. That's mm -hmm. You're a science denier. You know, and, and this language is exactly like the language of a religious extremism. So. Big time, big time. You even saw it because I'm surprised we haven't mentioned COVID yet because I think that that was a, a big old paradigm shift for a lot of people. And a big stress point as and well, a big right? Stress point Where you as had well. people reverting into these really kind of, you're, yeah, you're a morally incorrect person because you didn't conduct yourself in public in the way that I think the science has said you should. And uh, yeah, no, there were legit legitimately people like who I, one of the American talk show hosts, I forget which one. Um, who was advocating that people who didn't get vaccinated should be allowed to die in hospital and should be like denied healthcare. So wow. it was a, uh, it was to that level where it was publicly okay to advocate for people to die. And you saw a lot of that shadow material kind of emerge. <laughs> and um, especially on the left, obviously where people tend not to, people tend to identify with good and the beautiful and like, suppress all of their evil and ugly qualities it's just almost as if these um cultural battlegrounds give them an excuse to um to bring forth all of that shadow material and sort of all of their projections um and yeah covid was definitely one of these pressure points especially with the sort of believe the science slogan and all of these different things i think it was definitely a paradigm shift for a lot of people because it was the first time that a lot of people realized that science isn't just like this epistemological thing it's so an ideology <laughs> and this was one of the times where science and science and scientific scientific dogma was like really kind of pushed out to the forefront for people to see the way that it behaves like an ide ideology i wonder what you think about that what were your thoughts on the covid climate yeah i mean it was it was definitely a, a watershed moment because I think a lot of people who are kind of within the educated kind of liberal classes, you know, people who have, you know, uh, either gone to college or at least, you know, consume popular science, you know, people who generally have a pretty positive outlook on scientists in general and uh, look up to these ideas really got swept up into that. But it was very divisive then because then you've got like, the other 80% of the population who just kind of sees science as this thing that makes toasters and televisions or whatever. <laughs> and there was a lot more skepticism coming from them. So it created this massive divide where um, 
there, there, there was this seeking of acceptable targets uh, that was going on, which, which um, you already mentioned, that was definitely a big part of it. Um, but I, I think the cracks really began to form because the, the thing is, is that kind of um, scientismic culture um, is necessarily one that can't be insulated, right? Like, you know, inevitably you're going to bump into other people who, who do not necessarily believe that the uh, commonly accepted a narrative about that was uh, entirely truthful. And then lo and behold, you're going to actually have to defend your beliefs against somebody mm -hmm. who might know things that you don't know. And so it, it creates this tumultuousness, which I do think is a good thing ultimately, because that has to land somewhere. And it's definitely not going to land on a universal uh, bowing down to the cult of science, I don't believe. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy because I, I feel like we're going to be living in the fallout of that for the rest of our lives easily. Oh, yeah. I think, oh, yeah. I think science is such, a, such an obscure thing to sort of try to... Uh, debate any sort of morals or have that kind of stance on as well, right? Especially when it was something as emerging as as COVID, because it was constantly changing, and also it felt like uh, in the kind of current era that we're in that all information, all information is so fucking uh, polarized and geared towards making you either feel happy in your camp or <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like that you can't really like uh, fully fully like trust science in that in that similar way it's like it's just all information in some regard right and like i think it's sort of a lot of people kind of have that feeling and i think even when you're having like conversations with people and they start to name off like this person it's like you're a fuck you're fucking jeff down the pub you don't fucking know anything more than <laughs> than anything than anybody else that is like in this situation or whatever but people will speak with such such so conviction about it conviction, yeah. so and i think that's kind of like it, it comes around to that sort of dogma approach to everything as well mm. right like there's a another robert anton wilson quote i'll drop on on, on this episode's uh when dogma enters the brain, intelligent activity ceases to uh, happen. Which is very true. Very, very true. And um, a, another one as well is the the map is not the territory and the menu is not the meal, right? And so I think a lot of people have these ideas about stuff, but then it doesn't really come into congruency with reality and how they live their lives and all of these other things, right? And so it causes all the skepticism and everything else. I think it's just, it's a really shit time for science, <laughs> like <laughs> honest science and like good stuff. But you also like, what is anything funded by now? It kind of, it makes every, it makes everything so fucking questionable. Like, um, and I think there was a, there was a period of time before the internet where you could have all of these kind of things be obscured and you would take people's word on whatever, like science was done to prove that smoking cigarettes was good for you right mm -hmm. like <laughs> that, that was done for decades it was advised by doctors to smoke to cure asthma like it's <laughs> it's fucking insane so i just yeah. i i i i have that i i have that in my mind uh, especially post covid these days but even just speaking of uh science is sort of an epistemological exercise it's like the constant discovery and the constant sort of unfolding of of reality and of the processes of reality so the idea of becoming dogmatic about that seems 
totally counterintuitive. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's and being I, it, dogmatic it, about a necessarily moving target, which is yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> <The end. laughs> and that's kind of what, what perplexes me is that like, it seems to go over the, the sort of, I fucking love science people's heads totally because yeah. they're not really thinking about things philosophically. They're not thinking about things. And, and, and a lot of them actually look down on philosophy and they think that those of us who are interested in philosophy are like retarded and not worth listening to. Um, but I think that if they did think about things a little bit more philosophically, they could avoid these pitfalls. Um, and I also think it's really sad that like thinking philosophically is only really like okay online. Um, it's not something that's necessarily encouraged outside of the hallowed halls of academia or in like society as a whole. So people are more likely to go online in order to talk about philosophy or explore philosophy. But there's also a ton of the online realm is also incredibly atomizing. And there are all these sorts of, um, you know, insular rabbit holes. And it's not like the best place for real philosophical excavation. So th there's that as a problem. Um, but yeah, I, I do. I do think that if there was more philosophy alongside science, that there'd be a lot less of a, a sort of, you know, it would be a lot less easy for people to fall into these these uh, pitfalls. I wonder what you think about that. Do you think that their lack of ph philosophical knowledge and curiosity contributes to some of these problems? Yeah, again, and I mean, if you just look at quotes by scientists about philosophy, like philosophers, well, excuse me, scientists were philosophers. Mm -hmm. It was a branch of philosophy. This was just commonly accepted as how it works mm -hmm. until about the 1950s. Again, that's really the breaking point after World mm -hmm. War II, I think. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you look back at statements by people like Max Planck or even Einstein, I mean, you know, Einstein, his whole thing was really just kind of a mathematical scientific elaboration of ideas that he picked up from Immanuel Kant and Spinoza. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, mm -hmm. it's always been that way. Yeah. And, absolutely. you know, one criticism that was leveled at me by, you know, the lovely people at the scientism uh, uh, club was <laughs> uh, that I care about stories and not science, which is, is really funny because when you start looking at the history of science, that's when you start to realize just how narrative science really mm -hmm. is. So, I mean, just to take the most pedestrian example of this. We look back on the early 17th century and we're like, yeah, that's when we discovered that the earth revolves around the sun and Ptolemy was wrong and something about, <clears throat> excuse me, something about Galileo's little telescope figured that out and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, but nobody really knows what happens. When you actually look back at what happened, what happened is this. Copernicus proposed the idea of a geocentric cosmology because he didn't like the epicycles that were in the Ptolemaic cosmology. You needed to have this thing where there were like these extra little circles so that the planets would line up. But the thing is, that model worked with the epicycles and it, it, it actually made accurate predictions. And the Copernican model just didn't. It was wrong, but people liked it anyway because of really just metaphysical ideas. The idea that the sun is bigger than the earth and therefore, you know, it produces the light. It seems like it should be the thing mm -hmm. in the middle, right? <clears throat> and it wasn't until much, much later um, when Kepler came up with uh, the idea of elliptical orbits 
that that really kind of allowed the Copernican model to be brought back into accordance with observation. Now, the reason why you couldn't have elliptical orbits in the Ptolemaic system in, in the ancient Greek world was because the heavens were supposed to be perfect and ellipses are not perfect. So if things aren't circular, you just need to add more little circles and then everything still ends up being perfect, right? So, but what happened here is that this was in the post-Cartesian world. Carte uh, Descartes had done his, you know, I think therefore I am and really initiated this big break between the classical period of philosophy and the modernist period of philosophy. And people were a lot more comfortable with ideas that didn't necessarily accord with that Platonic cosmology anymore. And so Gal the way that Galileo fits into this, he did not, he did not prove that the, the earth moves around the sun. What he did is he took his telescope and showed that the splotches on the moon are craters. It's not perfect. He showed that Jupiter has moons. It's not just the earth that has one. And so it reinforced this idea that the heavenly realm was just an extension of the natural world. That was a radically new idea at the time, and it was a metaphysical idea, right? And so what happened there, that was such a breakthrough moment because the purview, the scope of natural philosophy expanded from the bounds of the firmament to the universe as a whole, okay? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's a big movement that happened right there. But nobody proved anything. There was no experiment that decided the heliocentric model in favor of the geocentric one. In fact, if we wanted to, we could use a geocentric model right now and it would perfectly accord with everything because space is relative. There is no absolute space. There is no real center of the solar system. We, we could just in our, you know, a model is an act of imagination, right? So in our, our heliocentric acts of imagination, we're pretending that the sun is holding still and everything's moving around that. But we could also just hold the earth still. And, you know, you get the other planets moving in these weird little loopity loops. That's not necessarily less uh, correct. You guys have probably seen this gif that's been floating around a bunch lately. And it's like the sun and it's moving. And then you've got this kind of like spiral thing with the mm -hmm. planet following it. You've seen that? Yeah. And that that's neat. But the way it's being posed to people is like, oh, this is what the solar system is really like. But again, mm -hmm. movement implies the idea that something is being held still rel relative to that. So within that model, what's holding still? The, yeah. the, the, <laughs> the very core of the galaxy or whatever. Right, yeah. Well, either, <laughs> either way, it's the same thing. It's, it's arbitrary to treat the galactic core as the center. We just think, oh, it's a black hole, so it's like even bigger than the sun, so it's more privileged. But again, that's a metaphysical decision. That, that, that there's no way of deciding that with a telescope, right? So anyway, point being, science is always a story. It always has been. So definitely, definitely. Mm. I, I guess I'm more familiar with like um the sort of psychological domain, and yeah, my my fascination with Jung mainly stems from the fact that he started out as like a sort of material scientist, and he was sort of you know best pals with Freud and was attempting to legitimize psychoanalysis as a true science. Um, and I mean, part of the reason that Freud split with Jung in the first place is because he didn't like the fact that all of Jung's weird esoteric shit may, you know, sully the reputation of psychology as a, as a hard science. Um, but even within Jung's body of work, he doesn't, um, 
he doesn't fully reject the scientific paradigm, but he also leaves room for the psycho-spiritual, for the transpersonal in that sense. It's sort of a reconciliation of these two conflicting paradigms, but he reconciles them incredibly seamlessly. I'm currently working on a video, a second video about his UFO essay. Mm. Um, and one of the things that he talks about in that is the fact that he is accused of, um, uh, he's accused by scientists of making this physical phenomenon purely psychological, but then he's mm. also accused by theologians of psychoanalyzing the spiritual so he can't win he's kind of like he's kind of like called a piece of shit by everybody and in that sense he kind of becomes ghettoized um but i like i like this notion of sort of as above so below i i like the idea of the reconciliation of the opposites one of the really interesting things that he talks about is the gulf between faith and um faith and um and knowledge being closed in this age that we're in at the moment um, and how those two things are going to sort of become one eventually. Um, and I kind of think that this is the growing pains of that process. Um, and I think part of the reason he was also so fascinated with UFOs is because he felt like this phenomenon would force, would act as sort of a forcing function uh, for the human psyche to um, you know, unlock elements of its depths that have been suppressed by the sort of secular scientific paradigm that we currently inhabit. I wonder what you think of of this notion of of sort of a, a reconciliation between the, a material worldview and a and a spiritual worldview. Do you think it's it's possible, or do you think that those two things are diametrically opposed? I think it's absolutely necessary, and it's really the end goal that's that's pulling all of these transformations forward. I agree. Big time. The Platonic perspective of the world was one in which the material world was this kind of temporal, fleeting kind of thing. It was, you know, shadows on the cave wall. We all know that metaphor. And then the transcendental world was eternal. And what's happened over time is you can think of it like this idea of becoming, of, of evolution. It starts with just like, ideas about things in nature like plants and animals with aristotle and whatnot and it slowly expands right and again that's what we saw with that that geocentric to heliocentric transition this expansion of the idea that the world is actually dynamic and evolutionary but within the currently prevailing scientific paradigm that division has actually been maintained this entire time because the idea of the eternal unchanging law giving god the the clock maker of the clock work universe is still mm -hmm. there they just don't call it god anymore they call it the laws of physics but it's doing mm. the exact same thing mm -hmm. it's performing this exact same function as the idea of an unchanging transcendental so it's still clinging to these last vestiges of platonism i don't want to make it out like i have a problem with platonism i think that we like there's no choice but to think within Plato to some extent within um, really just philosophy in general, because Plato is just kind of a manifestation of this even deeper heritage that we're all indebted to. But nonetheless, this aspect of it is really important here because this idea of the world as something evolutionary is, mm. is really uh, what's at play here, I think. And what's happening 
I believe with with cosmology and with biology and with um, Carl Jung and his his uh, analysis of like the archetypes and the collective unconscious, all of these things would have been regarded as these celestial eternal things mm -hmm. previously. But now, like it, it, within all of those different uh, purviews, we're starting to see these things as kind of transcendental still. They're still not just like physical objects that you can put in a box. They're still kind of archetypal or morphological in some sense, but they're mm -hmm. dynamic. They're, mm -hmm. they're themselves kind of mutating over time. And uh, science has yet to really catch up to that, I believe. There was, there was this, um, one of the OGs of science, this guy named Johann von Goethe, who was a um, like late 18th, early 19th century German um, super intellectual, you know, one of those guys like Hegel and Schelling and all that. And uh, he did all of this work on uh, like botany and geology. And the stuff with botany is so incredible because it, it's like the most humble thing you can imagine. He's literally just like looking at a flower and he's like, how does this actually work? And he develops a whole completely different idea of science out of that, which he contrasts with Newton. And it is like, uh, what's the, I, I want to use the word holism, but I think that word gets used a little bit too much, but it's, he, he's working with this idea that that nature is driven by this kind of, you could call it archetypal, but this kind of underlying blueprint, which nature is just kind of exploring as it goes. And so he develops this idea of what he calls the or phenomenon. So the, the or as in like primordial and then phenomena, uh, which is kind of like the idea of an archetype, right? And mm -hmm. he's looking at all these different like plants and animals and whatnot in that way. And uh, he develops this, a theory of color out of it where he, he looks at uh, just like the rainbow and he's like, how can we understand this in terms of the actual organization of, of human experience of light, right? Mm -hmm. So this is very different than Newton. Newton is looking at this and he's developed, he's trying to do this in, a way that really involves mathematical metaphors. So he starts talking about like wavelength and particles, um, which are, are, are still metaphors that we work with today. But then if you look at the actual science, you know, where are the waves, where are the particles? Um, Goethe said that those are just metaphors we're using. And, and when we mistake the map for the territory here, we're really making a big mistake because everything has to refer back to experience. And within that kind of Newtonian way of looking at, at color, for example, um, the idea is like, okay, there's, there's light and it has these things called wavelengths. And then somehow like color is just how we organize those different properties. So this is, you, you see this in John Locke, his idea of primary qualities and secondary qualities. So there's like, the world in itself. And then there's the way that our minds just kind of like stamp phenomenological properties onto it. Right. Like, so maybe my mind is using the, the, the red stamp for this wavelength, but your mind is using it differently. Gertz is like, no, 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 no. Look, there's, there's something archetypal going on here that actually connects human beings to the world. We are continuous. Mm -hmm. The world. We're not just a little pinprick of consciousness with this little stamp machine that's putting mm -hmm. subjective properties on on our sensory inputs. We are the world. Yeah. 
And so anyway, point being is, is he develops this, this very radically different way of understanding things, which is uh, very congruent with Jung, his ideas, very congruent with these ideas of like uh, bioelectricity and morphogenetic fields, which mm -hmm. I've talked quite a bit about. And I think it really points to a, the, 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 the synthesis, the union of opposites here, because then you're, you're taking that kind of those platonic ideas of, of transcendental forms and these ideas of scientific naturalism, and you're kind of merging them together. So, mm -hmm. definitely, Jung even talks about um, in the UFO essay how the unconscious exists irrespective of if consciousness is there to observe it, um, which is sort of similar to what you're talking about. These sorts of primordial processes, sort of already being there, regardless of whether our conscious. Um, minds are there to kind of observe it, which is really, which was a radical idea for him in terms of his feats in psychology, um, in the same way that it's a radical idea in the realm of science as well. So, do you see sort of this, um, the way that people have this dogmatic attachment to science, that this is something that's sort of grown and blossomed over the sort of decades, that this is actually something that just looks a bit different now in this time period, but was something else in 1800s? And that actually we are like kind of what you said, basically, it's all part of the story. And these are the growing pains and the uncomfortable part and showing that shadow and and coming into contact with that. And we're just digging our heels in further or there is some kind of um, event or something or whatever to sort of make people <laughs> shackle that <laughs> a little bit more and be open to the world and all the weirdness that it has. So, so you, you definitely see a kind of arc here over time, I think, because if you go back to like the, uh, the kind of um, the, the early enlightenment period, um, you don't really see what I would describe as scientism, because at the time, science was still like an extension of theology. I mean, there was no mm -hmm. apology about that. It was, I mean, Newton did not see like his esoteric pursuits and his physics as two different things. Like for him, it was all just naturalism which was trying to understand the mind of god that was it yeah. mm -hmm. you know and um over the 19th century that's when the industrial revolution happens and this idea of connecting science to these ideas of technological power start to really form and economic power as well of course those are mm -hmm. those are very deeply connected uh, but even then, the, the people who are doing the science are not like this weird cult of like mRNA vaccine peddling psychopaths. They're like weird <laughs> eccentric rich people who are like, like intellectual, but intellectual in a different sense than we're familiar with today. Like today, intellectual means like you went to like grad school and got a PhD or something like being an intellectual in the 19th century meant that like you were learning to read Greek and Latin when you mm -hmm. were like eight years old. You know what I mean? So these guys were like yeah. a whole different caliber yeah. Than, yeah. Than, than us, unfortunately. I would love to be able to speak Greek and Latin, but uh, Same yeah. Same here. I'm right. learning a little through you, you reading Jung, though. So I think oh, that yeah. I'll have to be happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, these guys were like very entrenched within the Western philosophical tradition, and there was no making excuses for that. You know what I mean? That was just like how it was. And it's it's not until later on that there actually one really big event that happened uh, during the early 20th century were these big debates between this French philosopher named Henri Bergson and Einstein that happened, right? And so 
Um, Bergson, he, he's a really interesting character. He's, he's got this kind of process philosophical thing that I usually connect to these different people like Goethe and Whitehead and whatnot. So anyway, I'm a fan, but um, <laughs> he had some big problems with, with Einstein because he believed that Einstein, like, like I mentioned earlier, Einstein's really just taking this very Kantian idea of like space and time and like formalizing it into a mathematically rigorous uh, system of physics and Bergson's like this doesn't work because what this is doing is it's taking human experience which is what we're supposed to be starting from in in the in the whole project of doing science and, and doing naturalism and you're sawing off the branch you're sitting on because time is so absolutely fundamental to our experience of the world and what Einstein's system really does is it takes time and it makes it into a fourth spatial dimension. Mm -hmm. uh, so you end up with this kind of block time where like objectively speaking, time isn't like really real. It's only real with regards to like particular frames of reference. Uh, which means that like from a God's eye perspective, like it's like the whole universe is just all happening at once. This is part of the reason why mm -hmm. Einstein had such a problem with quantum mechanics, because Einstein really did believe in like a fully determinate universe that was just set in stone start to finish from the beginning. Um, you can't really have that if you have this kind of like quantum indeterminacy thing going on. But anyway, Einstein believed that, that there was a determinate universe because that, that is very much like very a, Nietzschean, that's know. like getting rid of free will and all sorts of things. Uh, in like that the sort eternal of... recurrence kind of idea. Einstein was a Spinozist, so he believed that God and nature were essentially synonymous, or at the very least, that um, nature was kind of an outgrowth of God, at the very least, and that. Th this idea of like perfect harmony was at work in in um, the universe. And again, there are different ways that you can kind of construe that idea of like a perfect celestial harmony. Again, it's a very different thing for somebody like Goethe um, or even for Plato. But within Einstein's worldview, that means that everything has its place and it is just what it is. And yes, there is no free will within Einstein's cosmology. He believed... Uh, I'm going to get, I'm going to butcher this quote just a little bit, but one thing famously that he said was that our experience of existing through time is a stubbornly persistent illusion. So he, he believed that we only really experience time because of our, the contingency of our particular subjectivity. If you could, if you could back up out of that and see the world from a God's eye point of view, um, there really is no time. Everything's kind of happening at once. And you see that expressed within general relativity because, um, again, if, if uh, within, within general relativity, because everything is relative to particular frames of reference, if you're looking at the world from a, a kind of non-frame of reference, then um, everything is kind of happening at once. But anyway, just going back to Bergson, um, Bergson's got a big problem with this, not because of any quantum woo-woo or anything like that, but because he's saying, look, if you if you do this, then you're relegating as illusory one of the fundamental aspects of human experience, which is one of our starting point for doing this whole science thing to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Bergson, he's got his own idea of what time is as well, which I, I'm not going to get into, but... Um, this was a big deal in, in this historical trajectory because what happened here is this, it was this huge debate and like um, Einstein was supposed to get a Nobel Prize, but there was a bunch of controversy because of Bergson and that ended up not happening. And it just ended up being this thing where 
Um, Bergson was extremely popular um, at, the at the beginning of this whole debacle. And by the end of it, because so many people sided with Einstein, he ended up just kind of being disgraced. And now you barely even hear about Bergson anymore anywhere because the, the, the commonly accepted narrative, at least, is that Einstein was just right and Bergson was just wrong and mm -hmm. Bergson's wrong about time and time is so central to his philosophy, then why bother with his philosophy? So anyway, but that was that's really important here in this whole trajectory, because that's one of those moments where you started to have that rupture where science mm. starts to think of itself as something different from philosophy. Mm -hmm. mm. So for the last 10 minutes, since we're on Mystic in the Machine and technology is one of our primary talking points, um, what do you think of this notion that science um, sort of the that the that the epistemological proof for science is technology? in that sense. That seems to be an assumption that is made by many sort of uh, scientific dogmatists, and especially in terms of their view of society and the future. A lot of them tend not to think too much about the implications that technology has on our, on our culture, on our psyche. Um, you know, they're just sort of utopian in their notions about what technology can do to improve the human condition despite any of the consequences of it because they literally view technology as the proof of of sight of their of their paradigm their dogmatic paradigm um i wonder what you think of this idea and i i i'm like a i call myself a butlerian jihadist um <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> but i i wonder what you i wonder what you think of this idea Oh, there's a lot to be said about that. I'm going to oh, have to yeah. do a part two to that science video. That, that's <laughs> yeah, going to happen. So. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's so many things. Well, first of all, the the thing is that like 99.99 blah, blah, blah percent of the universe is not made out of machines. But we've created this world in which we're surrounded by machines. And, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So that's a big part of it phenomenologically because we start to see even living things as just, you know, squishy machines with blood flowing, flowing through their veins. And um, I think there's something, there, there's a very big distinction here uh, to be made kind of ontologically, right? Like the cells in your kidney know that they're doing kidney things for a human being. Like there's, there's an interconnectedness of whole and parts that's going on here where the whole system uh, has a kind of agency and, and, and a, a kind of self-organizing power to it. And like, you, you just don't see this in machines. If you smash your phone, it's not gonna put itself to back, back together. Living bodies do that, right? Um, even like a, an amoeba, you know, we've got all this fancy technology we look at, we're like, oh yeah, man, we got satellites and space shuttles. Nothing humanity has ever created is even within the ballpark of what an amoeba can do. Okay, but it's made out of matter and we're working with matter, right? So you'd think, you know, with all this science, we would have made, you know, at least some progress in being able to replicate what life is able to do, but we don't. And, I, and we don't because the organizational principles at work, I believe, are, are, are just completely different. Um, but there's another there's another aspect of this I want to bring up, and it's the 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 epistemological function, not not just as kind of an apologetics, not just where you're saying, oh, this is true because it makes nonstick frying pans work, but also when you're actually using science or excuse me, using technology 
as a methodological instrument, right? And so what's happening a lot now with the kind of like big money science, you know, you've got these particle colliders and satellites and uh, gravitational wave detectors and God knows what else. What happens is you've got these machines that are essentially filtering just obscene amounts of data, just enormous amounts of stuff and uh, they have to filter that data. And they're filtering that data on the basis of the theoretical presumptions that are being baked into the cake, that are being actually built into these machines that tell them what to look for. And so just to, to give a stupid example, like if I am, I have, if I'm trying to prove my like Eiffel Tower shaped cloud theorem, and I build a machine that's designed to look at billions of photos of clouds and give me the Eiffel t sh Tower shaped ones, it's going to prove the theorem because it's going to find some that fit that bill. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but you see this, th this is in everything and people don't realize it because they don't realize just how much filtering is going on. And it does create these epistemological loops. So one, one big uh, famous thing that we've seen recently is that photo of a black hole, right? And you get that little like orange donut looking thing. Um, it turns out that that is so doctored and it's doctored in ways that are entirely based on the presumption that that was a photo of a black hole that it's kind of like it, it what was a good example here like if you're if you're given a bunch of data and and you're asked to carve it out in the shape of something you're looking for already and then you present that as evidence of the thing yeah, right. Like that's an epistemological problem. It's a loop. And those are everywhere now. So that's a whole thing that we could get into. But yeah, that's another <laughs> way in which technology is really, really shaping um, and distorting, I would say, our, our views of things. Well, I think the space images stuff has come under a bit of scrutiny more recently than ever. I think yeah. um, there's been a number of cases that I've seen online where it's been proven that um clouds have been copied and pasted over <laughs> regions of satellite imagery and oh, wow. a lot of the imagery they've taken from mars has been oranged to make it look orange mm. to make it not look like it's <laughs> like earth to make it make it look like the red planet yeah to make it look like the martian dude to make <laughs> it look like the fucking film and that the only recently they've sort of started to de-orange mars and how have they done that is that like camera filters or what's going on with that why all of a sudden it kind of looks like a a normal place but for decades it's been like the red planet and every image we get from there it's fucking orange like um maybe interesting. mars doesn't exist i'm not saying that mars doesn't exist i'm just but it, 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 but it is a thing of just like well you trust uh, if you see a, an image come up from nasa on your social media or whatever that this is the latest finding this is the uh, picture the best picture we have of a black hole this is the you know this is the latest images we've had from mars this is whatever you take that on a certain amount of uh of faith um that <laughs> they are fucking not good images right as soon as a, a big institution like that starts to do do stuff like that it certainly throws so many fucking questions up in the air right mm. and you that's remember the wild. good old days when when you know somebody would be like man the, the moon is a satellite the government put it there and you'd be like wow that person's crazy and now <laughs> today someone says it and you're just like 
Maybe. Is it? Um, <laughs> is it? <laughs> there's a lot of funky shit about the moon that I would love science to really come to the bottom of. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, there's, yeah. Don't get us started on, on the moon. <laughs> and the tiny men that live inside of it. Oh, dear. Oh, who knows? Um, well, like, I, I guess our final question for you is how do you well i guess i'll pose it to all of us how do you recommend people stay grounded in this time of uncertainty and ontological models being challenged and mass hysteria um what are your what is your advice for remaining grounded in this uh paradigm shift that we're experiencing on the collective hmm well I guess the real answer to that is, is that, you know, our grounding should really never be about theories to begin with. Like, cause, cause the, again, you're, you're trying to hold a moving target still. It's just never going to work. Grounding. I think it, it's much more existential, shall we say it's much more, or it should have more to do, I think with our idea of, of like the worthwhileness of life and what that really means in terms of like what we're doing here and why that matters. And again, the details of that can be fuzzy sometimes. I think this is something that's kind of better off being fuzzy though. Like this, you know, it's it's a kind of gut instinct that I think we feel that we, we can lose sight of so easily that just existing is is kind of serving some kind of purpose you know you know different people especially religious people will have specific ideas about what exactly that means and i don't even necessarily think that they're wrong uh but i think that just that that intuitive feeling itself it has mm -hmm. this immense value that that can't be overstated and we, mm -hmm. we we really mess up when we try to replace that with something else so yes big time i was going to say the same thing about the function of intuition and how much modern culture is attempting to sever us away from it. I mean, I bought a COVID um, last, like last, and I think that that's like a visceral example of um, a cultural moment where people were sort of forcibly divorced from that intuitive feeling and shamed for it. Um, politically, you see this phenomenon in this in the world of science in the world of philosophy you see this phenomenon where people are constantly sort of being ripped away from their intuition even though it's the primary tool that we have to navigate anything so i guess my advice would just be to like really hone into that and and take it more seriously than ever because you're going to need it like you're going to need it in this coming period for sure mm -hmm. um how about you jake do you have any more Robert Anton Wilson quotes for us? <laughs> I, have, I have no Robert Anton Wilson quotes that serve as guidance for the moving forward. Oh, but there probably is, but I can't think of them right now off the top of my head. But um, I guess for, for me, I think the best way I've seen navigating everything at the moment is with a, a giant lump of salt and an open heart is uh the, the best go. way I can <laughs> I can describe it. It's like all the information you take. Big fucking pinch of salt every time, really kind of weigh up against other stuff that you've heard, other things that you've read, everything else. Like question everything, I guess, is sort of that that thing. But then also have an have a genuinely open heart to the possibilities of reality and information and everything in your life because it will probably surprise you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I definitely like the fact that you're you're calling towards the heart. I think that that's definitely another mechanism that we're 
or being severed from, even though it's probably the best one for processing anything, really. It's such a powerful element of, of the human soul. Um, but yeah, any anything else to add before we before we close? I think that's too strong a note to, to end on. <laughs> you know? So yeah, let's cap it up with that. Awesome. Yeah, we're talking to you guys. This is great. We should totally Amazing. do Amazing. Plug yourself before you go. Let people know where they can find you. Oh, right. Yeah. Formscapes. Uh, Formscapes on YouTube. We've also got a website now, formscapes.org. I'm going to start doing uh, classes, actually, where I'm going to be teaching, uh, going through some of these books I talk about chapter by chapter and uh, just uh, teaching it like a regular class. So if you want to do that, uh, come check it out. We're starting that next month. And uh, yeah, that, that, that'll do it, I suppose. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And we could go for hours with you. And I'm sure, I'm oh, sure yeah. we'll have you on again, definitely. Oh, absolutely. If you, if you would like to come back on. Um, <laughs> I'm here for you. it, yeah. Amazing. Thank you guys in the audience, too. And we shall catch you later. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.